This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. Taylor Stevens, the New York Times best-selling and award-winning author of Kick-Ass International Thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. And for those of you out there listening at home, we are, this is coming out about eight or nine days after the 4th of July in the United States, but we're recording it on the 5th of July. So I'm going to begin by asking Taylor what she did on the 4th of July. Had to be something Nothing. spectacular. <laughs> no, no, I didn't. I wasn't able to get away this year to do anything except try and comfort the dogs from the massive booms going on on around us everywhere. Because people spend a lot. I don't know what it's like in other places. I I assume it's similar to this here, where people just spend their life savings <laughs> on fireworks <laughs> and then blow them up and they're all around you and they're very loud like you there's smoke blowing through the air you can smell the gunpowder and the dogs very much don't like it so that was my fourth of july we had the the grandkids wyatt and austin over the over the weekend and so yesterday which was the fourth we were running late but we wanted to take them to the park so we took them to the park after dinner and we were there playing with them long enough that it got dark and the fireworks started. And there are these kids climbing things that you can climb up. So we climbed up to the top and watched fireworks in like five different directions. So that was kind of fun. That that sounds like a lot of fun. Do the boys like it? Because I know some kids get scared by them. Oh, they weren't scared, um, but they were bored. It's like, I'm so oh. glad we didn't just like go to one of the big <laughs> firework things because they yeah. would have been bored after the second one. So they're like, oh yeah, that that's funny. About- can, let's, let's climb this thing again. You know, I'm thinking about my kids when they were young, and yeah, that's not about right. <laughs> it's funny. It um, it reminds me of a story, and I'm going to apologize to all our listeners right now because this is going to be another story episode. I, I'm just going to preempt Steve right now talking about the topic of the podcast and that we got some... So are you saying that and- when I categorize this on the website, which is the show.taylorstevensbooks.com. I think I got that right. I will put story because we're going to be talking about story. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and I knew that. I'm just teasing. We got some fantastic follow-up questions um, from last week's in, in regards to what last week's episode. So we'll be, that's what the show is going to be is answering those questions. This particular show is but I also have another story that I want to tell that's related to Independence Day. And I'm just going to apologize straight up for this is another show, another story-ish episode. And I was feeling guilty about it, thinking, oh, can't do that because, you know, this is supposed to be a podcast all about writing and kicking writing in the butt. And then I was like, but wait a minute. This is right. Part of writing fiction is the art of storytelling, and you're going to get a master class in that just listening to me talk. So, ha. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> huh. So, anyway, that's my that's my justification for, for threading this very thin line for telling you more stories. But the thing about Fourth of July and Independence Day is I just realized when all those fireworks were going on, and, and I because they started here on the 3rd, and it was rolling around to midnight, and I went, wait, this is 2021. Like, this is my 20th year, my 20th anniversary of my own Independence Day. And that is the day that I escaped Equatorial Guinea. <laughs> and there's a story there that is so worth telling. And so that's going to be the chit chat before we go into answering these other questions. So, Equatorial Guinea, if you've read the informationist, tiny, tiny little country off the west coast of Africa, and you know already how paranoid it is, and just, it's it's not, wasn't really a fun place to live. And if you listen to 
last week's episode, then you know you heard what I said already about us kind of being an anomaly in that country and whatnot. So it was just a very unique situation. And when we had gone there originally, it was we were just a very small group of mostly same age people and just enough of us, there's five of us, I think, that we could still classify ourselves by cult standards as being in a being our own home. So we weren't technically, quote unquote, backsliders, but we were so far remote that we might as well have been for all intents and purposes. Like in the whole two years we were there, I think we had one visit of somebody who came leadershipy who came to say, hey, what's going on here? And that was it. So we were very isolated and independent. And that was great for our, uh, how do you say, de decompressing our brains and removing ourselves from the cult mindset in the sense that I, I often describe being in that cult environment as like a fire and as long and you're just the one little coal and as long as you're in that fire you're just part of this collective thing but if you take that coal and you move that one small coal out away from the fire it dies out pretty quickly and that's kind of what happened to us when we were there we had a chance to start thinking for ourselves and not in an ideal situation necessarily because the environment was so difficult to live in the country like we didn't have running water like electricity was sporadic and we had to live incredibly frugally in a country you would think that different countries in Africa would be more affordable because you know it's different living standards but it's actually often quite the opposite because everything has to, so much has to be imported and getting anything that's close to even low level standards of what you'd expect in a developed country is incredibly expensive. So we had to be very, very frugal and, and really didn't have a lot of leeway in, in living well. Uh, in that country, like there was, you know, if you, if we needed, it had the most, some of the most deadly malaria in the world. And, um, it was just really, it was stressful enough. There was so much time that was consumed with just trying to keep things running. Like the simple act of paying your electric bill involved taking your physical bill that showed up in your mailbox because there's no mail delivery. It, it had to go to a mailbox and there's only one post office in the entire city. And then you had to take that physical bill to the electric company and stand in hours of lines to pay it. But you might get there and wait and go through that whole line only to find out that the one person who had the authority to accept payments, wasn't there. And nobody knew when they would be back. And the best they could tell you is just come back tomorrow. Repeat that on everything, just to keep life semi-functioning. So that's what it was like there. And um, it was very, how do you say, like, uh, it was like living under a, a, a bell jar, because being that we were so such an anomaly in the city, everyone, even people who didn't know us, knew who we were. So like one time uh, there was a bag that one of us was carrying. They were sitting in the back of a pickup truck and they set the bag down and someone stole it. And there was camera equipment in the bag, but also our only house keys. We had two sets of house keys and not smart. Both of those sets were inside that bag. And so there was no way to get into the house. And it was this big deal. And the next morning, the house keys were sitting on our front porch, not the camera equipment, but the house keys, because everybody knew who it belonged to. They knew where we lived, and they knew who our landlord was. It was very, um, he was like the nephew of the president of the country. <laughs> I was like, you better give those back because those actually belong to the guy who owns the house. And so that was the environment. Um, and the rules were changing all the time. And so when we decided we were done there, like we had, we, we realized there it, we could spend our entire rest of our lives doing what we were doing, which was trying to help building school desks, 
providing educational material. Like we really were doing this. We'd raised our own money to do it. We were sacrificing under extreme conditions to try and help country. But the the local situation was one in which the the government just saw us as a way to pad their own pockets, which is very different from anywhere else we had been on the continent. And normally you would say, hey, look, we're dealing with all these bureaucracies and people who want bribes from us, but we don't have the money and we're trying to help. And here's what we're doing to help. And the person with the power would say, ah, screw that. And they would just like rubber stamp everything and get us on our way. Right. But here in Equatorial Guinea, if you tried to do that, they'd be like, yeah, and where's my cut? So um, it was just really, really difficult. And finally, we were like, okay, we're done. So to be able to leave, it meant that we needed to, you know, either give away or sell everything that we had because we, you know, sure, we could just walk away from it. But, you know, what what was the point in that? Like, you know, we needed to, to dispose of everything. We couldn't take really very much with us. We would be flying out. And Equatorial Guinea, at that time in Malabo, there were two international flights a week uh, to Europe. So one came from Spain and one came from Switzerland, Madrid and Zurich, like clockwork, every week, only those two flights. You could go through Cameroon, but that would often very complicated because, you know, getting a ride into Equatorial Guinea from Cameroon, you couldn't necessarily depend on the schedule or anything. And if you're traveling with a child, which I had a child at that time already, and by the time we were ready to leave, I was already pregnant with the second one. You know, you, you just, it's really, it's really arduous. So the other thing about Malabo at that time, in the, which is the capital of Equatorial Guinea, is there was no, no rooming, no housing, no health, hotel rooms available. It was growing so fast because of the oil money that if you didn't already have somebody who had arranged for you a place to stay, and a lot of times oil companies would like oil companies had their own complexes. They built their own housing outside of the city proper, but sometimes they would house people in town or smaller companies that were connected to the oil industry would house people in town. They would like rent whole buildings and, and you just, you'd go to a hotel trying to find a room and you'd find out that the entire thing had been booked for a year and all the rooms were already, there's just no place to stay. So once we, no longer had our apartment, there would be no place for us to go. We had to be, with our flight out, we had to be on that flight. And that seems to be a very basic thing, but in Equatorial Guinea, not so much, because not too long prior to us, you know, to our flight, the Swiss Air flight that had uh, landed that week they had mechanical difficulties and there was no mechanics there to deal with it. Like once that plane was there, that was it. Like the airport was just at that time was just like, you know, the size of the house basically. And, you know, they built a new one while we were there, but even that one still wasn't very big. And, and they didn't have parts or any of that stuff. Like there was no uh, hangar. <laughs> <laughs> where you could just put a plane in and, and work on it. Nothing. It was just the tarmac and the runway and this little house at the end of it. And maybe, maybe a radio tower. I don't know. So this, this plane a few, few weeks, few months prior had been there and they, they, it, it wouldn't, there was issues. They couldn't take off. So they were like phoning into Zurich and Zurich's like, well, try this. And then Zurich's like, well, try that. And just like back and forth with the engineers on the phone trying to see how they could get this machine to run. And finally, like so the flights would leave at midnight and finally, you know, it wasn't going anywhere. So, you know, they opened up the doors, they'd served all the food, they'd served all the drinks, but nobody could get off the plane because they'd already technically left the country. And so, you know, they're hanging there with their legs dangling out the side of the doors. And finally, at like six o'clock in the morning, the pilots are like, all right, well, we're going to try and take off and see what happens. <laughs> and this runway has a mountain on one side and an ocean on the other. <laughs> so that is the airport in Equatorial Guinea. And then to get out of the airport, to even get to the plane, you've got to go through your typical customs and immigrations and all of that, which is they 
are going to look for any way to make you pay a bribe to get them not to go. And like at the point that I was passing through the, the ladies like, uh, there's something wrong with your vaccination card because they required you to have vaccination cards going in and it, it, just more bureaucracy, you know, to, it, more ways to get money. It, it, they didn't actually enforce any of those rules. And I, I looked at her and I looked then at my husband and I said, she's saying there's something wrong with my vaccination card. And we all knew it was, we all knew it was complete BS. And he just looked at me and he looked at her and he walked over and he pulled it out of her hand, handed it to me and said, let's go. <laughs> like he, he was so over it by that time of just this, you know, he was like, I'm done. And I was like, come on, you're going to get us arrested as we're trying to leave the country. But anyway, we knew going in, sell, as we're selling off everything and and closing it down and saying goodbye to everybody. By the time that was done, we literally had just the suitcases that we were allowed to take with us. And we, uh, a friend was giving us a ride to the airport. A couple of friends, actually. We just loaded everything because we were all leaving at the same time. And after that, if, if something happened, if that machine couldn't take off, if there were any issues at the airport, we had nowhere to go. That was it. Like <laughs> nothing. We, we, this was it. And so we get on the plane. It arrives on time. We get on the plane. We go through all the, the BS of getting our stuff out of through customs and immigrations and everything. And, you know, they, they had all these requirements. You know, we want to see, did you convert any currency when you were here? You're only allowed to bring X number of dollars or X number of anything out of the country with you. And if they find it on you, they will confiscate it and possibly put you in jail. And we had just sold a car. We had just sold everything else. And we'd split all the money exactly evenly between everybody as like, all right, this is this is how we're this is all we have, you know. But it was every single one of us was carrying more than we were legally allowed to take out of the country because we couldn't prove that we'd brought it into the country. So there's all these stresses and we finally get out and we're sitting on that plane and we don't know if it's going to take off. <laughs> you know, We're just like fingers crossed, hoping. And finally it does. Plane takes off. We're in the air and we're still in, you know, everybody have your seatbelts on mode. And I hear these guys talking kind of to my left and behind me. And mind you, like everybody on this plane pretty much besides us is either an oil worker or uh, somebody who's an, a national of either Equatorial Guinea or Cameroon or somewhere local. Like we're, again, the anomalies on this flight. Like what are we doing there? And I hear these men who are clearly oil company workers talking and they're discussing what it's like to leave their compound and go into town, which is where we lived in town. And they're talking about how there's policemen on every corner and what it's like to get pulled over constantly and have to give a bribe and the process for the bribe. And it's like one guy is telling the other, well, the one man has been through this and the other guy has never been into town and experienced it for himself. And as I'm listening to them, talk. They're they're describing my everyday life experience of all the crap that we put up with just trying to navigate navigate this matrix, this structure that that just wanted to make everything difficult for you. And it dawns on me, it's like it's over. This this is over. And this just overwhelming just wave of almost disbelief washed over me. Like I just got out of prison. I just escaped because this island was so small and there was nowhere to go and there was nothing to do and no way to get away from the heat, no way to do anything. You're just in it under this bell jar all the time. This bell jar that's constantly stress, 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 stress of just trying to exist. And this sense of it's over, it's done, I'm free. And it was like this, this sense of just euphoric disbelief that this was actually happening 
that it was possible. And it wasn't until like the wheels were up and we were at cruising altitude and the pilots going like, okay, well, we're expected to arrive in Zurich at, you know, six o'clock in the morning or whatever. And it was like, this is really happening and and I'm I'm done. And I I think I had more PTSD from those two years in Equatorial Guinea than I did, or at least as much as I did from my time in the cult. But we flew out of Equatorial Guinea at midnight, uh, right before midnight on July 3rd and landed in Zurich at six in the morning, July 4th, Independence Day. So this is my 20th year anniversary <laughs> Independence Day of escaping Equatorial Guinea. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great story. <laughs> so... I'm like all sweaty and my skin is tingling right now. And I'm like having a physical reaction to it. But yes, it was an experience. I wouldn't trade that experience for the world. I would never want to repeat it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So now we move from that story on to other stories. So these questions that we're getting now have come from Carl, who is a friend of the show and also a patron who's been very supportive of keeping me and the show running. And also, if you are one of the few who have been lucky enough to have a physical copy of the vessel in your hands, Carl is the one who really made that possible. Uh, It it would never have happened without him because he handled so much of the the whole interior design and, and just was amazing in his knowledge of typesetting and very patient in working with me. So Carl, another shout out to you and now these very amazing questions. So the first one he asks is, he says that in, in the last round of storytelling, I was talking about how I, when I made the decision, like I'm going to write a book that I needed to learn how to write. And that was a whole other story. And he's like, yes, please. So here's the story behind that. At that time, so I knew when I made this decision, I'm going to write a book. I knew I didn't know what I was doing. I knew that I always wanted to write. And I know I can string words together, but that is not the same thing as writing fiction. Especially not when I have these Jason Bourne books and this whole Croft Covenant thing that had blown my mind and everything. I'm like, I do not know how to do this. So at that time, Barnes and Noble had what they called BN, BN University, and they were offering free, non-accredited writing courses which I don't know when that started and I don't know when that ended. It's a pretty genius idea, actually. And so I thought, okay, well, I'm going to sign up for this. So I did. It was all online. And they said, um, okay, here's your, I guess it's your syllabus or whatever. You need, uh, we want you to get a copy of The Great Gatsby and we want you to get a copy of The Gotham Writers Workshop. And I was like, (sighs) Fine. You know, I have to actually buy these books. <laughs> I found secondhand copies of them, but still it was a big deal. And so the I logged in and the course instructor was all like, well, let me introduce myself. And this is what we're going to be doing. We're going to be using the Gotham Writers Workshop as our study guide. And we're going to be using The Great Gatsby as the book that we use to discuss these various ideas and things that we're going to learn. We're going to have regular writing assignments that you're going to be turning them in. And this, this group, this class is going to be your critique group. And I went, nope, not going to happen (laughs) because I realized right then that I would be required to write things I didn't care about and that they would be critiqued and judged by people I didn't know and who I didn't care about either. Like, I don't know you. Why does your opinion matter to me? And I also knew myself and the environment that I had grown up in that if I did this, what they were asking me to do, having already received so much negativity 
and had been beaten down so much of, you know, not good enough. You're the problem. It didn't matter. Like if you ever did anything good in the cult, you could never take credit for it. That was Jesus. But if you ever did anything bad in the cult, well, that was absolutely your fault and you deserve the punishment. And often things that you didn't do bad was still your fault and you deserve the punishment. So I, um, I was just like, no, if I do this, I'm never going to write. I'm, I'm going to get hung up on being corrected for doing, for writing things that I didn't even want to write in the first place. So this is not for me. So I, I quit that very first day. And, but I still had these books. I had the great Gatsby and the Gotham writers workshop. So I, read The Great Gatsby, and I didn't get it. I was just like, what? Like, this this story is horrible. (laughs) It has nothing. Why would anybody want to read this? I didn't get it then. I still don't get it. I read the Gotham Writers Workshop, and I didn't get it either. But I understood with that one that I didn't get it because I didn't understand the ideas, the concepts. I mean, I understood about characters and I understood about genre, but there was just a lot in there that it it was like opening up a whole other language to me that I didn't really understand. But I wrote, I was like, okay, well, I I kind of have an idea of how to get started here. So I just started writing and I wrote every day, which was not easy considering I had two very small children at home and I'm very ADHD, which I did not know at the time. And to write in small chunks was very, very difficult, especially when I didn't know what I was doing. But at the time, I also um, I had this little trampoline that I would jump on to music as a way to get exercise since I really, you know, the times that I was out of the house, I was just sitting in a park. Um, watching the kids or whatever. So as a way to get exercise, I would jump on this trampoline and I would listen to music and let my thoughts go. And like without fail, when I'm jumping on this thing, I'm thinking about the story and ideas and and what should happen and whatnot. And, um, and, And I wrote. And then I went back and I read that book again. And I sort of started to get what it was talking about. And I just kept writing. Every chance I got, every free minute, bouncing on the trampoline, thinking about stories. And over time, as I started to do this regularly, I started to find my voice. But I think I was a good halfway through the book, the first draft, before I really started to find my own voice, my own style, my own way of writing. Um, And I went back and I read the Gotham Writers Workshop again. And on that third read, I understood what they were getting at with everything, pretty much everything, because by that time I had been doing it myself. I wasn't just reading about it. I was doing it. And so that was that's how I learned how to write. I learned how to write with the Gotham Writers Workshop as my guide and beating words into submission day after day after day after day excuse my dog, in every small chunk of time that I could get. And it took me three years to do it. By the time I was maybe three quarters of the way through, my my strength, the writing strength has started to come through. I started, I started realize, like grasping how to do it. And I kept having to go back and rewrite sections because I had improved that much along the way that things I had written earlier just didn't even match stuff that I was writing later. And right now in The Informationist, the prologue and the opening chapter are some of the strongest pieces of writing in the entire story. And that's because those were the last things I went back and rewrote. So by the time I had gotten to the end of the writing process, I had sort of found myself as a writer. I mean, I still continued to learn as we went through the books and you can see my writing strengthen as we go. But that, and that's part of the reason why the writing and the information is a little bit uneven 
because it what it's like I learned to write while I was writing it and not everything got cleaned up exactly the same along the way. And that's sort of so that's the story of how I learned to write. Gotham Writers Workshop is a really, really good book, by the way. And um, I, I, I know it's not that way for everybody. Like some people really do appreciate the critiques. They, they need that feedback. But I knew that it would only stop me and, and, and stand in the way of me actually doing what I needed to do. So that's why I opted out. So that's that story. Next question. <laughs> so these next two questions relate to the cult, more or less. And so this one is about age stratification. And it reads, I surmise as you got older, especially being born into the cult, at some point you started to have some kind of priority or authority over younger kids. What was that like? It's a fantastic question. It's really difficult to answer because I am the oldest of five, and I'm also one of the oldest born into the cult. I cannot remember a time in my life where I did not have the responsibility of somebody else, caring for somebody else, looking after somebody else. Um, so, like, as a child, um, I am seven years older than my youngest sibling. So, by the time I was eight, I mean, I was... I was me and my next sister down. We were the babysitters. Like, you know, we're one of us always had him on a hip. And um, that that's just that was that. Like I was responsible at, you know, a young age of mom and dad would go out during the times that we weren't living with other cult members. And and I was responsible for my siblings. Granted, in that era, I'm Gen X, we're the latchkey kids. That was not unusual at all, all the way around. But when the combo era started, and I was 12 and 13, I would like, I think I was 12 when I was handed off a group of five and six year olds. And I was responsible for taking care of them all day long. And until after dinner, when they went back to their families. And I uh, like at that time I was I don't want to say I was given to a family as a nanny, but I was roomed with the family and I was responsible for taking care of their kids whenever the parents weren't around. So like if the parents were gone, like to other homes or doing something, I was the parent of those kids there. It, there were two different families in that same time frame that I was assigned to. And I don't remember how many the first family had, but the second family, I think they had five kids. And I was 12 and 13 years old, and I was responsible for those five kids. When I was 13, I think I was 13, getting close to 14, the the home that I was living in disbanded because we lost our housing and sent everybody out on the road. Uh, so I ended up with this group of people that I think it was three adults, me, two other children, maybe, and a two-year-old girl. And the two-year-old girl was specifically handed to me and said, here, she's yours. You're responsible for her. So at 13, no, yeah, 13, on out in, in Japan, without any permanent living situation, living from, uh, we didn't even have a vehicle. So we were, it was... <laughs> I just, I'm, my mind is kind of blown as I tell this story. We didn't even have a vehicle. So we were like dependent on trying to get hotel rooms for free and to earn enough money during the day, begging and hand distributing literature to cover train fares and stuff and any extra and our meals, we had to find people who would donate them and any extra was sent in to support the cult leaders and in that situation, I'm a 13-year-old girl responsible for a two-year-old child, fully. Uh, so, you know, it's hard to say what was that like because that never that that just grew uh, with age. The older I got, the more responsibility I was given in terms of taking care of others, but always as a flunky. It's not like I ever had like full authority over them. I wasn't really in a position to discipline or do any of those. I mean, I could give people time out, for example. I remember one time when I was, oh God, 12, and I was one of the lunch servers in a in the middle 
school, the middle age, the nine and 10 year olds lunchroom. And this one kid was acting up and I put him in the corner and I forgot about him <laughs> until, until, until somebody's like, Hey, this guy over there is crying. And I was just like, <laughs> I felt sick inside oh. to this day. I still feel sick inside over it. Like, how could I have done that? But I was 12 and I was busy and there's all these other things going on and I should never have been given that responsibility in the first place. But anyway, yeah, so that, that's what it was like. But the age stratification thing was a really big deal because we, we, we didn't live with our families after a certain point, like from the time that I was about 12 years old on. And then it got way worse as I got older. That's when it started. And, but as I got older, it, it became sort of de facto way of living. The, kids didn't live with their parents. They lived in groups according to age stratification. So your age stratification sort of determined what rights or privileges you had. It determined who you interacted with and didn't because the the, the teen group really wasn't going to react with, interact with the preteens much unless they were uh, like assigned as caretakers or assistants or whatever. So if you were a middle child and you're siblings were five and if you were like an eight and nine year old and your siblings were five and six year olds you didn't see your siblings unless it was during that specific time period that the families got together at dinner and had their family time after and then you all went back to your groups so age stratification was a really big deal in terms of your place in this hierarchy but my experience would be very different being one of the older ones than it would be for somebody who's a middle child or you know, one of the younger kids, and I, I can't speak to what their experiences were like, but I know for me, that's what my experience was like. Then there's the question of what's the story with my husband, now ex-husband? Um, did we meet after we left? No, actually, he's a cult baby just like me. And we met in Kenya. And we worked together really, really well on a, uh, as a team. We're very, very different like complete polar opposites. But where I am very non-confrontational and I don't like putting, I'm, how do I put it? I pick up on ex human expression, emotions, what's going, what people are, how people are reacting around me. I'm hypersensitive to it, which in a way I suppose is to being in this environment where you never knew what was coming at you. I think that I'm that way anyway on, on just personality wise. And then it was exacerbated by living in the cult. So I was very sensitive to not wanting to upset people, trying to avoid confrontation, which wasn't really a great when it comes to trying to get your way past secretaries to speak to office people who run companies when you're trying to convince them to, you know, give you money for this project or that project or for whatever. But my ex-husband is exact opposite of me. He was a little bit, uh, just, just say exact opposite. He's a really good guy. I don't want to say anything that's going to like say, make him look bad or anything. So he would get us in and I would do the talking <laughs> so that we could like, so we were, we worked that way. I would have ideas he would figure out how to execute them. Uh, he's an incredibly hard worker, super attention to detail, very smart. And so we worked really good under those circumstances. But once we got out of the cult and started finding out who we were as people, we realized that we really had nothing in common. And the way I try and describe it to people, uh, the best analogy that I've been able to come up with is plants being grown in under glass jars. So if you have plants and you're growing them in a form, like a glass jar or whatever, the plant is going to grow to take the shape of that jar. So you look at all those plants, and unless you really, really examine them closely to see that oh, they have different leaves or different structures, they all look the same. So you're a plant in a glass jar, and you look at that plant in the glass jar and go, hey, we're the same. We get along. We work together. We have the same whatever. But then leaving the cult is like breaking that glass. And it takes a little while for the plants to sort of lose the shape that they'd been forced into. But once they start to lose the shape and take on their own 
you start to realize we're not even the same species. So that's kind of what happened with us is that we didn't, we were we had nothing in common. And so rather than lose any more of our lives, lose any more chance at happiness and just make ourselves miserable trying, trying to stay together, we sort of just shook hands and parted ways. And we're still friends. It's just, we weren't ever meant to be married. So that's how we got together. And I, and and so when I talk about, you know, the whole story of how I got published and how it all came down during like one of the worst times in my life. And I had been recently divorced and blah, blah, blah. That's, it was that divorce. It was our, the time that we decided to just go enough. And it just kind of coincided with all these other things going on at the same time. It wasn't planned to be that way. So that's the story of him. I'm, I'm actually really feel really fortunate that we were able to leave together because when we were in the cult, so the way the cult operated is you never told anybody what you were really thinking or feeling. If you had doubts about the leadership or about the ideology, the beliefs or anything, you kept them to yourself because the cult mindset, when I was a child, the cult mindset was, well, that's the devil. We're going to beat and exercise it out of you. But as I got older, it was, oh, you feel that way? Fine. Get out. Go leave. We don't want you here because you're going to contaminate someone else and they'd toss you out, which from the outside, you're thinking, yay, freedom. But from the inside, it's like, where do you go? You have no resources. You have no nothing. You're just out there. Like you're, you're left to fend for yourself with nothing in a strange place. That's the thing of nightmares. And so you learn to keep them to yourself. <laughs> you never discussed anything that might possibly, uh, like hint that you were a doubter or a potential backslider. So when he and I first got married, we were thinking about getting married. I, I had already been like, like I said, in my last story, I've been like, since I was 14, I don't belong here. And I knew it was probably, even then I knew it was probably just a matter of time. Like I just working my way towards getting my way out, but I'm terrified. And hey, I kind of don't want to leave Africa right now. And, uh, you know, if I can take advantage of these resources that are still available to me, then that would be good. Don't get myself thrown out on the street. So at the time, I kind of hinted to him, just kind of like trying to feel him out. Well, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? To get a sense of how much danger did this guy pose to me in terms of ideology and getting me in trouble? Because you were only loyal to the cult. Spouses were taken, were separated from their partners all the time. Children were taken away from their parents. And you just, I just wanted to know, you know, how, how freely can I speak to him about things? And at the time he was just like total true believer. Like, but I have to also say he's a little bit younger than me, too, and, you know, had been even more sheltered than I was. So don't don't any of our listeners hold that against him. <laughs> you know, it wasn't his fault. So at the time, I was like, OK, so this could be a problem. And I always kept that in the back of my mind. Like, you know, if I do decide to leave, there's there could be I, I have to be really careful here, especially once. I had a child because I didn't want to end up in a situation where he disappeared with the kid and I had no way to find, to know where, where they were, which happened quite often in the call. So I, I always had that in the back of my mind, but <clears throat> when we were in Equatorial Guinea, I, I started being a little more, we were so isolated that I could be a little more vocal in my disagreements and my doubts and my, uh, this is just so messed up and this doesn't make any sense. And, you know, do they think we're stupid and those types of things. And there's this verse in the Bible. I don't remember it exactly word for word. And, you know, we always did King James English, so I'm going to butcher this, but it, it had, so, it said something along the lines that Jesus was talking to the Pharisees and he says, ye encompass sea and land to 
make one proselyte, and when you find him, you make him twofold more the child of hell or child of devil than yourselves, which was basically saying, you know, you go everywhere trying to find disciples or converts, and then when you find them, you make them even more extreme and more self-right or whatever than you. And that's kind of what happened in our, <laughs> our particular situation is I had my doubts and made my grumbles. But when it finally got into his head, he, he went balls to the wall, just, just far more extreme in his enmity towards them than I ever could. And he was fearless. So there came a point when I started to sense the turning of the tide and I was, I think, I remember we had a laptop that was our connection to the outside world. And I, I was at it. I don't know where I was writing something like a report or whatever. And I looked at him and at that time, I think our oldest was eight months old. And I looked at him and I said, I'm done. I'm done with Africa and I'm done living in the cold. And we didn't call it a cult because anybody who's in a cult doesn't think they're in a cult. But, you know, we, we called it the family. I'm done. I'm done with Africa. And I'm done with the family. And he looked at me. He goes, me too. And that was it. That was the decision right there. And then we decided that we weren't, we couldn't tell anybody. Because if we did, that was the end of it for us. We'd be stuck where we were. And we needed to get out first, get out of there first and get ourselves somewhere where we could actually, you know, live and have a job and, and make some kind of life. So we knew, and I think there was one other person in that home that also knew, and, and they also were sort of planning their escape as well. And at that point we started squirreling away every single penny we could get our hands on. Um, some of us were working like little side jobs locally that would uh, for the oil companies that would give money. And we had other little ways of just like supplementing our income. And so instead of before that, we had taken everything we had and we would just keep pouring it into these projects we were trying to build. But once we realized we weren't going to build the projects anymore, I was like, OK, we need to start figuring out how to get ourselves out of here. So it was a it was a, a very long ordeal trying to get everything closed down. Uh, make sure all the projects we had started and were paid for, we had been paying for, were put into good hands, and and then we had to find a place in Europe that would be willing to take us in. That and and once we got there, we couldn't. So we finally got out of Ecuador. You heard that story. We landed in in Europe. We had a home there that would take us in. Um, it was a miserable situation, also. But hey, it was Europe. <laughs> you could be a whole lot. You could be miserable in Europe on a whole completely different level of misery <laughs> in, in Malabo. So um, at that point, you know, the, the cult still didn't believe in in any kind of outside employment. They were starting to crack down on some of the liberties that they'd opened up. People were starting to get really suspicious if you acted differently. And so my my husband at the time, he would. Uh, go out. Uh, he would just started making phone calls from the from the phone book, and he would go out and just like randomly. He'd he'd say he was doing something else, and then he would be like looking for a job. And it was pure serendipity that one of the places that he called said, "Yeah, come on in." And they did that because they mistook him for another appointment that they had that day, and it happened to be a uh, an industry that probably doesn't really much exist anymore, but. It was a learn as you go type thing. You couldn't you couldn't come into it with any uh, how you say like training or experience you learned on the job. And it was an image bank. And so basically people would call in and say, you know, I'm doing this magazine article for X and I need an image of a guy on skis with snow wearing uh, snow behind him, maybe on the Alps wearing a red hat. And then the people in this image bank would would search through archives of photos to find the type of options that these marketing or PR companies or whatever were looking for. And so they hired him. And on the they liked him better than the original person that they had originally intended to interview. And so that was just like pure random luck. And then at the same time, we had been going out looking for apartments on the slide. 
And that we found one that would rent to us. And the guy, the guy, the owner forgot to ask for employment reference. And we signed the contract. We had the money that we'd scrolled away in Equatorial Guinea that we used for our deposit on the apartment. And after we'd signed the contract, the guy asked for the employment reference. And he had just been hired like three days before. So we had the we moved before we even knew we had the job because we had to get out of that environment. It was it was killing us. And I was eight months, eight and a half months pregnant at the time. And the apartment that we moved into was like in, in we were in Germany and, and they don't necessarily come with kitchens. Like you bring your own kitchen. And so when we moved in, there was no no kitchen. Like I was washing dishes in the bathtub and we had a little two burner hot plate that we were using as a stove. And I was happier than I'd ever been <laughs> in my life. I was like, it was freedom to, to wake up in the morning. There's just me and my oldest. And we had this little space all to ourselves. There was nobody looking over my shoulder, nobody judging me, nobody saying, oh, you're not being spiritual enough or you should be doing this with your time. I could actually decide what to do for myself without any eyes on me. It was pure, unadulterated freedom and also terror because, you know, I couldn't walk down the street without being afraid that maybe a bus was going to come out of nowhere and hit me and, and or, or God was going to strike my ch- children dead as punishment for having left. And it took a long time to get rid of that type of emotional baggage. But it was, it was, it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. And it took us about a year before we finally were able to get ourselves to the States. And we knew this was all, this had always been our end destination because I just didn't speak German and I didn't have the legal right to, I had the legal right to stay, but not the legal right to work. And and his English, he spoke better English than he did German. So, and and he could legally, once he got a green card, he could legally work here. So this was always going to be our end destination. And it took us from the time that we made the decision to quit and get out to the time that we finally made it to the United States was maybe two years. <laughs> I don't know about that, give or take. And we arrived for good in Dallas, January 1st, 2003. And I've been here ever since. Wow. I I knew a lot about your story, but there was a lot in there that I did not know. And it makes it even more, more, I don't know, you had a heck of a mountain to climb. (laughs) A little bit. Yeah. But that's the, the whole thing that got me started on that story is that I was grateful that I didn't have to do it alone. Like he and I, even though eventually we realized that we never should have gotten married in the first place, when it came to actually getting out and achieving the goals necessary to get out, we made a really, really good team. And having each other to lean on and not having to do it alone was, I feel very lucky that I had that. Not everybody did. All right. So that was story time and Q&A follow-up from last week's episode for this this week's episode of the Taylor <laughs> Stevens Show. Yes, it was. And I'm going to put it out there again. I'm still open to more questions. But next week, we're going to have actually a real writing show again. So anyway. <laughs> we're going back to our roots. Yes. Thank you guys for being with, you, with us. And uh, we'll see you next week. <laughs>